So I really appreciate you being here. We, we, I won't obviously keep you too long, um, but I'd like to uh, just kind of bridge between what we were looking at this afternoon and this evening, uh, both in a, in a way of focus on Christ, um, the supremacy of Christ we looked at this afternoon, and I want to look at the bride of Christ uh, this evening. In a sense, what we looked at this afternoon I was trying to deal with in a more individual way uh, how it is that God has spoken to us through Christ uh, and you know, how he's speaking to us in a more individ- from a more individual pers- uh, perspective. But I want this evening to look at the more corporate perspective of the church. So uh, we're going to look at the bride of Christ. And so I want to take you to Revelation chapter 19, and I'll read just a few verses from verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6, and John the Apostle, of course, is writing here, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let me give you two very quick reasons why it's important to consider uh, the, the bride of Christ. The two reasons are these. Um, if we understand the teaching on the Bride of Christ, it will show us that history has a definite direction, and also it will uh, tell us that God's ultimate victory is certain. Now, the, the, the immediate background to this passage uh, describing the church as the Bride of Christ and the Wedding Supper of the Lamb, the immediate background is the fall of Babylon. And uh, that's what's been written about in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And it's actually what's being celebrated from a heavenly perspective at the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, the, uh, the redeemed in heaven are actually celebrating the fall of Babylon. Now, the book of Revelation, you'll be aware, is full of numbers, full of symbols, full of metaphor. Uh, and you've kind of like got a code to crack, really. But uh, Babylon really stands for a kind of worldly structures that stand opposed to the things of God. And uh, as we look around the world today, it seems that Babylon often seems to thrive in our world. Worldly structures flourish, uh, very often not submissive to God, in any way, uh, apathetic about the things of God, some worldly structures, as we think of government, politics, media, other things, can actually at times be quite hostile to the things of God and to the things of the church. Meanwhile, the church itself can be written off. The church is kind of old-fashioned, it's dying, it's irrelevant, it's not 21st century. Uh, so Babylon flourishes, the church is often uh, marginalised. But when we come to the Bible, what we see is this is not the end of the story. And actually, as believers, we need to know the end. (laughs) Uh, Because what the Bible teaches us is actually that Babylon is going to fall and the church is going to be married to Christ. 
And the picture that's given is of the church as the bride of Christ, celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb amidst tumultuous celebrations. Uh, That's the picture that's given here in Revelation chapter 19. Now, as believers, we need to embrace our future by faith right now, because that will strengthen our resolve, it will sharpen our hope, and it will motivate our commitments when there are so many distractions in the world today that we have to cope with, and actually when times are tough. But perhaps even more than that, what I'd just like to get across to us tonight is something of the grandeur and the the splendour, the majesty of being the bride of Christ. Uh, I actually think there should be a sense of wonder about us. Uh, and that comes through this picture. So I want to pick up on this uh, famous expression of the, the bride of Christ. I think pe- often people talk about the body of Christ, but I want to make the emphasis now today on the bride of Christ and certain things that we need to say about this. So first of all, I want to talk about romance. And uh, because uh, if you talk about brides and weddings, uh, what you anticipate is a bit of romance. And uh, the bride of Christ is actually the greatest romance in history. You actually get something of the flavour of that, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, very famous passage there. Many of you will be aware of this passage. Uh, And Paul, in Ephesians 5, talks about Christ and the church, and he talks about husbands and wives, and he does both at the same time. And he gets one to illustrate the other. Now, I think because we live in a a very man-centred sort of time rather than a God-centred time, what we tend to do with Ephesians 5 is to put the emphasis on the husbands and wives. So we tend to draw a lot out of that passage about marriage, uh, and we tend to stress that. But actually, I would like just for a moment this evening to actually flip it and put the emphasis on the other way, uh, which is about the relationship between Christ and the church because that's also so clearly in this kind of intertwined passage. So let me just read a couple of verses from Ephesians 5, uh, from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And actually, if you think about Christ and the church there, this is actually describing the greatest romance in history, that Christ has, as it were, chased his bride down through the centuries of history uh, and has always been seeking to woo her and win her. If you go back to the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's uh, people then, are often depicted, actually, as the wife of God. But interestingly, she's always depicted as a faithless wife. And so I suppose Hosea, I mentioned that this afternoon, is uh, the kind of strongest uh, sort of picture there where uh, Hosea marries uh, a a faithless woman and then she proves faithless again and and leaves Hosea and he has to go and kind of woo her and and, and win her back. And it's a picture of God dealing with Israel. Uh, that's, uh, the nation is, a, is faithless and kind of prostitutes itself uh, with other gods, and God is always reaching out and seeking to woo her uh, and win her back. But Christ doesn't give up, and what we see here 
in Ephesians 5 is his attentions crystallizing in the church. And so uh, what we're seeing in Ephesians 5 is that Christ loved the church, and because he loved the church, he gave himself up for the church. It's a very strong phrase. It's not even just that he gave himself for the church, but he gave himself up for the church. And it's a kind of picture of total surrender. And uh, it's a picture, obviously, of Calvary, of Jesus dying, giving himself up completely in order to, to purchase and to, to win the church. He lavishes uh, love and care and attention on the church. He says he washes the church uh, uh, through the, with water through the word. It's a picture of, uh, of care and attention so that Christ can receive his church as his radiant bride. And I suppose the most famous verse here is verse 27, where it says he, he's going to present her to himself as a radiant church. And very often that's read as radiant bride. So he's going to present him to himself as a radiant church or a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, let me take you just for a moment back to Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Because in Ephesians 1 and verse 4 we read, For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, can you see, and I've obviously illustrated it here, that the two phrases, holy and blameless, appear there, uh, repeated. So, we are chosen in Christ. This is speaking about us as individuals. We're chosen in Christ. And having been chosen in Christ, we are holy and blameless in his sight. So, uh, we can sometimes find this hard to, to grab hold of because of the enormity of it. But because we're in Christ, because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, in God's sight, we are holy and blameless. So God's looking at us here tonight, and what he's seeing is holy and blameless people, right? Now, you may not feel like that, but that's how God sees you, because you're in Christ. You're covered in his righteousness. And uh, uh, that actually is what we call justification, and sometimes uh, justification is spelt out as just as if we've never sinned, but it's actually more than that. Justification means that we're covered in Christ's righteousness, and God sees us as holy and blameless in his sight. But notice that the church is also described like that, for he, chose, for he wishes to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the church is also described in exactly the same terms. Now, I mention this for a very important reason. Uh, there's, there is a, a bit of a feeling sometimes, and I pick this up quite a lot even in our churches in, in New Frontiers, that actually Jesus Christ cannot return because the church doesn't yet look like this. All right, The church doesn't look as though it's uh, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, and uh, we're probably only too conscious of how the church appears to look. All right, uh, and, uh, and therefore, because the church doesn't look like that yet, uh, Jesus cannot return. Now, I have to say, I think that's a wrong understanding, and it's a misunderstanding of justification. You see, if I, if I said to you at a personal level, uh, as a Christian believer... If you died tonight, would you be accepted by God? 
you might say, well, I don't particularly want to die tonight, but just, uh, just bear with me. Uh, if you die tonight, would you be accepted by God? I, I hope you would reply something along these lines. Yes, I would be, because God sees me in Christ. I'm acceptable to God because I'm in Christ. And I'm covered with his righteousness. My friends, what is true of the Christian individually must be true of the church corporately, because the church is made up of individual believers. So, to Jesus, the church looks radiant, the church looks holy and blameless whenever he returns, right? Uh, Jesus died to make us like that, all right, so that we should be holy and blameless in the sight of God, covered with his righteousness. And Jesus gave himself up to make the whole church like that. And that was what was accomplished at the cross. Let me put it to you in the way of a, an illustration. Um, how, does, how does a bride look to the bridegroom on her wedding day? Well, I, I think most bridegrooms would say, oh, she's just perfect, you know. Uh, <coughs> I, I took many weddings when I was an elder for 24 years at, uh, at Brighton. And I was always very interested in how the bridegroom would react as the bride appeared. And uh, the, the construction of our church building in Brighton was such that uh, we had a kind of, um, we had raked seating up to a kind of different level. And so when the bride came in, the tradition was she didn't come in on the ground floor level, she appeared on this uh, higher level. So everybody was waiting for the bride, you know, at the beginning of the meeting, and she would suddenly appear, you know, kind of up on this upper landing. And so I, I always took note of the, of the bridegroom at that moment, and uh, sometimes there were tears. Uh, they always used to go, you know, sort of a gulp. Uh, one, one bridegroom, I kid you not, uh, he actually fell on his knees and started crying. Uh, I, I have heard of bridegrooms who've actually fainted at that moment in other churches, you know. Uh, and I think, I think you see that the bridegroom at that moment would think, oh, you know, the bride, I mean, she, she looks just perfect. Now, if you're a bit more cynical and a bit more objective, you could, you could stand back and say, well, I don't really know what he sees in her, really. No, no, no don't tell me that's never been said, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, and friends, there's a sense in which you can look at the church like that and say, I don't know what Jesus sees in her, really. But actually what Jesus sees is this. He sees a radiant bride. He sees her to be holy and blameless because he's given up his life in order to win that kind of bride. So we say Christ loves the church, and then we kind of introduce this word justification, which is quite a theological word, can even sound a bit of a hard word, but actually it's totally romantic. Because it means that whenever Christ returns, whenever he returns, what he will receive will be a radiant bride, and she'll be holy and blameless. He gave himself up so the church would be like that. And so the first thing I'd really like you to grasp hold of here this evening is I want you to realise what we look like to Christ. As a corporate body, you know, we think, oh, you know, we don't look very spotless and without wrinkles, but actually what we look like to Christ, who's given himself up for her, is a radiant bride. Something of the grandeur and the wonder of being the church. Let me take you on secondly to celebration. I'm going to go to celebration next. And uh, I want you to note the shouts of celebration here that introduced the wedding supper 
and the bride of Christ. You see it there in verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb uh, has come. So the Bible is full of hallelujahs, isn't it? Actually, it's not. This is the only place, and there's no other place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. Maybe surprised to hear that. <laughs> now, the word hallelujah is used quite a lot in the Old Testament, but there's no other place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. It's only here, and it is reserved for the fall of Babylon, hallelujah, and for the church as the bride being married to Christ, hallelujah. Right? It's the only place where hallelujah appears in the New Testament. And so you've got this picture of great celebration. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory. The wedding of the Lamb has come. Hallelujah. How do you have a real celebration? Well, I think very often it's a, it's a with a meal, isn't it? That's so often how we celebrate. And of course, that's very true of a wedding, that uh, you, you, have, you have a meal. I'm always anxious to, to save uh, on expenses in, in weddings. And uh, <laughs> I... I just feel, I've noticed it in churches, in our churches, that can, to these days, it can sometimes, almost I feel sometimes, get a bit competitive. Uh, and I mean, it can be very costly having a wedding today. And uh, I mean, if you've got the money, you want to spend a lot of money on, on, on a wedding reception, um, uh, a wedding breakfast, I don't want to get legalistic about it, you, you go ahead, just invite me, but it doesn't... <laughs> You know, my youngest son, when, when he got married, we just had strawberries and cream. And we had as a buffet, everybody circulated around. Uh, it was a very cheap reception, everybody had a good time. And I, you know, I think there are couples today that need to hear that kind of thing, because you can get caught up a bit in the worldly spirit today and start uh, uh, spending, spending money uh, beyond what uh, you've really got. And uh, I've actually ministered in cultures where families really ruin themselves financially. Mm over weddings. It's in their culture. And you get families that go into debt for decades in order to throw you know, a, a wedding reception of magnificent proportions that's going to last for you know, three or four hours at the most kind of thing. And I think we've got to be careful not to get caught up in that. Uh, but you celebrate so often by having some kind of meals together. Uh, our group of churches down in the, sort of the South Westmore, <clears throat> we have an annual Bible weekend now called West Point, which is uh, near Exeter. And uh, uh, we sort of camp in churches, as you know, sort of traditional Bible weeks do. And so when we had it in August, we, we had our uh, sort of celebration meal as a church on site on the Saturday afternoon. So everybody pitched in. It was sort of burgers and sausages, you know. And uh, it, it was a celebration. We ate together. It was real fun. We had a, had a celebration together. That was on the Saturday but on the Sunday, burger wars broke out um, at our Bible weekend because most churches actually decided to have it on Sunday afternoon. Uh, we'd had it on Saturday. And it was amazing. So th- th- there was burgers kind of going up in flames all over the campsite. And I was walking through the campsite, and uh, in the Paul church, they said, come to us, we've got Tesco's finest uh, beef burgers. So I was enticed in there. And then I, I, I walked up past the, uh, our Yeovil church, and they had enormous beef burgers. And they said, why don't you come and join us? Look at our burgers. And then Grace Church, Chichester, it was like the Bible said, they were sending out their people into the highways and byways, compelling people to come in. 
not only have we got burgers, but we've got scones with Rodder's cottage, uh, clotted cream from Cornwall. And by the time I got into the site, most of Citygate, Bournemouth, my church, were actually there in Grace Church, Chichester. Uh, and I think they're trying to kind of win our members across. You know, so there is a sense of celebration, isn't there, uh, that we tend to have very often around a meal. Uh, and actually, we need to remember that even with the uh, communion service or the Lord's Supper. I, I kind of grew up in a, a tradition where the Lord's Supper, to be honest, it was a somber affair. Um, I think the Lord's Supper is serious because we remember what Christ did. But I think with the seriousness, at the same time, paradoxically, it should also be full of joy because we celebrate the achievements of the cross. Uh, and so there's a meal again, a sort of meal that we are celebrating uh, together with. Now, particularly for the church, the wedding supper of the Lamb ought to be very dear to our hearts because it's going to come after the hardship of the present life. When often Babylon seems powerful and strong in the world, but what we're moving towards, friends, is the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I've often wondered whether the church as the bride of Christ is actually much more meaningful to the persecuted church than it is to us. You see, I think in this country, okay, it's a bit tougher now, isn't it? It is a bit tougher, you know, that you you sense things are moving against us and legislation is moving against us, media on the whole moves against us. It is tougher. But to be honest, it's, it's, it's still pretty easy to be a Christian in this country. I mean, we're not going to have our names taken because we're, we're here tonight. I mean, there may be church members who have their names taken because they're not here tonight, but you know, <laughs> no, I'm joking. But you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get a knock on the door, you know, by some, some military police because you've been in church tonight. Um, it's not, gonna, it's not going to be like that. But for, for many believers in the world today, you know, life is on the edge. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you know that right at the moment, Christians in Cuba are having a very tough time under real pressure uh, for their faith. And of course, you know, it goes on in parts of China. If you're in northern Nigeria or Pakistan, it's always the possibility you're going to get a bomb in the building. I mean, it really is like that. I mean, we've got believers today in many parts of the world that really are living on the edge. Uh, and Babylon might seem to be flourishing. Babylon might seem to triumph. But Christians in that situation know that the church is the bride of Christ. And it's interesting, churches under persecution always go to the Psalms and to the book of Revelation. Because they, what they're reading there is uh, of you know, how to live through suffering in the Psalms, but of ultimate victory in the book of Revelation. And it is going to culminate in the church as the bride of Christ. Babylon will fall, the celebrations will begin, every trial, every persecution will be over. And the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be the climax of history. So this is a very important doctrine to the persecuted church. I think we may not get it as much, because that's not our pressure in the same way. But even for us, there are hardships, aren't there? And uh, I just happen at the moment, we have a series of friends who are going through particularly hard times um, at the present, present moment. But friends, we're the bride of Christ. And it's not going to end in despair. It's going to end in celebration and in a wedding supper. Now, there's a question that I'm often asked, which is this. Will we literally eat together? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Are we literally going to eat together? And people often say, well, surely it's metaphorical. Uh, the book of Revelation is a lot of picture language. Uh, and surely this is a metaphor, a picture uh, language that's being used here. Um, I, I was dealing with this uh, a number of years ago now in, in, in our church in Dubai. I've worked for 20 years into Dubai, and we have got a great church there, which is very multinational, because all the nations come into Dubai. And uh, uh, I, I picked this up once. I was aware. I, I kind of got to know the church very well. I knew the different cultures in the church. And so I kind of picked this up once in the Dubai church. And uh, I said, I want you to imagine that you're invited to a, a wedding, uh, and to the, re- to the reception of the wedding supper after. So you go to the wedding, you have a great service, and then you have uh, you know, three or four hours of photographs after which, which I'll pass over because it's an area of bitterness in my ministry. Uh, and, then you, uh, and then after the photographs, the best, the best man stands up and says, friends, uh, thanks for coming. I hope you've enjoyed the service. Uh, uh, appreciate you being here. Bride and groom are thrilled to see you here. Um, I know you've been invited to the wedding supper, but I just want to tell you it's actually metaphorical. Uh, and uh, there's not a real, there's not re- any real food to eat. And I said to the church in Dubai, I wonder how you'd react. And I said, I think you'd react according to your cultures. And I said, there was, you know, there's a number of Brits there in the church. So I said, okay, Brits, how would we react? And I said, I know what we'd do, we'd moan. You know, oh, blow me. You know, I thought we were coming to a good meal. And you've been here all this time, all through these photographs. You know, I didn't, didn't think the sermon was that good. I blame the government, you know. I mean, I mean, that's how we'd go on, isn't it? You know, so... So we just moan about it. And, uh, and then there's a group, a group of South Africans in the church, you see. So, uh, we've got any South Africans here? Oh, many of our churches, we have South Africans, but. <laughs> right. And, uh, if you're, South Africans are always making plans. They speak like that. So I said, if you're a South African and you were told that there was uh, no actual food, I said, I know what you do. You say to one another, we'll make a plan, because that's what South Africans do. They, anything they're going to do, they said, we'll make a plan. So I said, I know that's what you do. And then I said, uh, there were a lot of Indians in the church in Dubai, so I said, what about you? Now, I love Indians, love the Indian culture. Indians are very passionate. I mean, you've only got to look at them playing cricket against England. I mean, it is scary. Uh, I said, you Indians, what would you do? I said, I know what you'd do. You'd set light to the orders of service, throw them in the air, and have a riot. Because, <laughs> you know, Indians are like that. Uh, and, and then there's another big group of Filipinos. And... Uh, Filipinos are incredibly sociable and very tactile. They're always kind of hugging one another. And uh, I, I, I said, what about you Filipinos? I said, I know what you do. You'd hold hands and you'd sing to one another. Because <laughs> that's what the Filipinos would kind of do. Uh, and I mean, they love that. But I said, I said uh, uh, the reality is, whatever our culture, I think we'd feel pretty fed up, you know, to feel that there was actually no food. Friends, we are going to celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. Will it be an actual meal? Well, I tell you this, it will be real, probably rather better as a meal than we would understand a meal today. But it will be real. The day is going to come when Babylon will fall. There will be no more persecution, no more trials for the church, no more writing off the church as irrelevant or out of date or whatever. Worldly systems and structures will collapse Jesus, the Lamb of God, will celebrate with his bride, the church. And I want you to take that with you this week, because I don't know your situations, and 
you may, you may be in a tough situation at work or even with the family and people laugh at you because you go to church and you're a Christian, you know, and, you know, what, what are you doing? That's also old-fashioned fuddy-duddy. What are you up to kind of thing? What a waste of time. I mean, there's all sorts of views that can be passed uh, about us, all sorts of judgments made upon us. But what I want you to carry into this week, whatever you have to face is actually what we're moving to as the climax of history. All Babylon will fall, all worldly structures will come down. Everything hostile to Christ will actually fall and break. And what we will do is celebrate with Jesus Christ the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I want you to hold that in your hearts. Let me go then, thirdly, to uh, preparation. Uh, I want to raise a question here. And the question is, when are we the bride of Christ? Is it now or is it in the future? And uh, I want to bring you to this by pointing out that in the Bible there was a different culture with regard to marriage. And this is very easily illustrated in the relationship between Joseph and Mary before Jesus was born. Let me just take you to Matthew chapter 1. These are verses that are well known to you, but let me just uh, kind of underline what these verses actually tell us in terms of a different cultural setting for marriage. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, you know those verses incredibly well. I wonder if you've really thought about the detail of those verses. The first thing that we need to to remind ourselves of here is that at this point, Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married. The word there is actually betrothed. And in that culture a betrothal was far, far stronger than an engagement in our culture and our society. So if you were betrothed to one another, you were absolutely committed to marriage, so committed that the couple would actually be referred to as husband and wife, although, as is clear here, they had not yet come together and had not yet had sex together. Now, that's specifically said here. Um, and, of course, we know that Mary and Joseph did have sex together because, of course, Mary went on to have a number of children. But at this point, Mary and Joseph were not living together. They had not had sex together. But actually, uh, Mary was pregnant. And as it says here, she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know that to be the case. Now, have you really picked up what it says in verse 19? Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And you might say, well, how could they get divorced? Because they weren't even yet married. But the point was this, that if you were betrothed, you could only break betrothal by a legal document of divorce. Uh, And so that's how that all ties up. So Mary and Joseph were betrothed to one another. You know, an absolute commitment to marriage, and it could only be broken by a a legal bill of divorce. Now, I want you to bring that to Christ and the church. And I think if you bring that cultural sort of setting to Christ and the church, I believe you can make out a very strong case for saying that presently the church is betrothed to Christ, uh, but she will become 
the bride of Christ at the end of history. Now, let me give you some verses that that seem to suggest that. So if you come back here to Revelation 19 and verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give uh, give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. So you're here at the end of history, and what you're reading is that uh, the wedding of the Lamb has come. So this seems now to be, you know, when the church becomes the bride of Christ, because at this point, the wedding of the Lamb has come at the end of history. Also, there's a very interesting verse on this in 2 Corinthians 11.2, where uh, Paul is, in a way, talking a, a, about the same thing. So, uh, although he's making it personal to the Corinthian church. So if you go to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, um, uh, what what Paul says is um, I've got to what am I looking at? To, is it one Corinthians eleven two? Isn't it? Am I in the wrong one Corinthians eleven two? Just bear with me. I'm looking at my notes here, and uh, I haven't quite touched the verse. It is eleven two, is it? Um, sorry, I'm looking at verse three. Thank you. I was looking at verse 3. It is 2 Corinthians 11. So. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, the words that's translated in the NIV is, I promised you to one husband, is literally, I betrothed you to one husband. So, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So it seems that what Paul is saying is that, church, you are betrothed to Christ, so that finally you will be presented as a pure virgin bride, all right, to, to, to Jesus. So that, again, would seem to indicate it's betrothal now, but uh, the church will become the bride. Then come back to Revelation 21 and verses 1 and 2, and John, in these very famous words, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now this is a picture of the end of history, and John's picture is of the church described as the new Jerusalem, uh, which we know from elsewhere is a picture of the church, beautifully dressed and prepared as a bride. Just for a moment, recognize that this scripture, which is again probably very familiar with to us, is actually a ridiculous picture if you think about it. You think about a city that's dressed as a bride. I mean, it's a very peculiar picture. I mean, you try and think of that in your mind's eye. How do you have a city that's dressed up like a bride? I mean, talk about here comes a bride all fat and wide. I mean, that's the sort of picture you're getting here, isn't it? Uh, but uh, because we know from other parts of the New Testament, New Jerusalem, uh, the bride represents the church, we conflate the two together and we can see it's a very strong image of the church. And again, it's described in the end of history. You know, what happens at the very end? John says, I see the church. And he describes the church as the the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven. And so you're at the end of history, and he's describing that. So you bring all of that together, you make out a very, very strong argument for the fact that the church is presently betrothed to Christ, and she will become the bride of Christ at the end of the ages with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, I get all my doctrine lined up, I get all my ducks in a row, all my verses are there, and suddenly, having satisfied myself and tried to convince you that's the case, I read Revelation 22:17, 17. 
And in Revelation 22:17, you have the present situation of the church, the spirit and the bride say, come. And that's the present situation of the church, right? So the church, uh, described there as the bride, inspired by the spirit, is saying, please come back, Lord Jesus. That's what we're looking for. And that's the present situation of the church. So I built up a great case to say to you the church is betrothed to Jesus Christ but will become the bride. And then suddenly I'm upended by Revelation 22, 17, which seems to say the church is the bride of Christ right now. And we're saying to Jesus, please come back. So it seems that what we're reading is that the church is already the bride but will become the bride. Now, let me take you to another very famous verse of Scripture which I think may help us here. It's Romans 8, verse 30. And uh, Paul says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, all those verbs are in the past tense. So in the past, we were predestined. Sometime in the past, we were called by God with an effective call. When God called us, he justified us, past tense. And all of us who are Christians, that's true of us sometime in the past. God predestined us in eternity. He called us at a point in time. He justified us. It doesn't matter whether it happened yesterday, uh, last month, 50 years ago. It's still at some point in the past. And then he says, and those he justified, he also glorified. So if you're justified in the past, you've also been glorified. Now here's my problem. As I look at you this evening, some of you look mystified, some of you look exhaustified, but none of you look glorified, right? <laughs> and we know that's what's going to happen. Because we've been predestined, because we've been called, because we've been justified, we know that we will be glorified. So why is it in the past tense? Well, I'm sure you've, most of you have heard it many times from preachers. It's so certain if we've been predestined, called, justified, that we will be glorified, that you can speak about it as though it's already happened, because it's absolutely certain. Can I say, I think that's what we got with the Bride of Christ. It is so absolutely certain that we'll be the Bride of Christ that actually you can call the church the Bride of Christ now. So the church is the Bride and will become the Bride. I think that's the sort of thing that uh, is being conveyed here. Now, at this point, something rather odd happens, if you've been following me. We pick up with these verses, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Verse 7, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her, for fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And suddenly we've got an oops, because if you've been following me, I thought we'd said that that Christ sees the church already as perfect, radiant, holy and blameless, and suddenly we're reading this verse that makes it seem as though the church has yet to make herself ready. So it appears to be a contradiction. Now, let me unravel this for you very briefly. I'm going to give you an explanation, a translation, an illustration, and a confirmation, but all four are going to be very, very brief. Right, here's the explanation. Uh, The explanation is, if we can bring it up, please, it's the state of grace we are in as the church. The church holds the testimony of Jesus. That's what it says here in verse 10. We hold the testimony of Jesus which means that by repentance, faith, and the good works that flow from repentance and faith, the church has already made herself ready. She, that's the state of grace that we are presently in. Translation, 
I am reading from the NIV, uh, where it says, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. But that's not the best translation. The ESV is actually the more accurate translation. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the translation means that because of grace, as we do righteous deeds, it's as though we're able to put on fine linen as a reward. We can, if you like, dress up for the wedding because of our righteous deeds. Now, the illustration, I hope, will make this clear, um, because, you know, I realise that's a little hard to follow, but the illustration, I hope, will make this really clear. Why does a bride make such an effort for her wedding day? And I would say to you, it is not so that the bridegroom will accept her. It's because she knows she's already accepted by the bridegroom. And because she knows she's loved, and because she knows she's accepted, that's why she wants to be at her very radiant best on the wedding day itself. Now, I'd say to you that actually she could turn up in torn jeans, a t-shirt, and a purple balaclava, and the bridegroom would still accept her, because he loves her, all right? She's, you know, she's accepted. But it's the very fact that she's loved and accepted that turns brides into fanatics, all right? So they pour everything into being the very, very best that they can be for their wedding day. Now, I've got six granddaughters. If I am spared to their wedding days, knowing them already, I'm thinking, Lord, how am I going to survive you know, the preparations for their wedding. I'm already taking out emigration papers, you know, just in case I'm still around, you know, when six of them come up to get get married. The bride prepares because she's loved and accepted. Is that not right? That's what she does. So that's the illustration. Let me give you the confirmation. And uh, I'm going to give you a biblical confirmation, which is in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 12 and 13, uh, where the Apostle Paul says, My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So Paul says, if I can paraphrase this, Work out your salvation because God has worked in salvation. See, God's worked salvation into us. We are saved. We're in a state of grace. He's worked that in. And because God has worked it in, we can now work it out. And that's what we're meant to do as Christians. We've received the grace of God. We've got repentance. Sorry, we've got mercy. We've got grace. We've got forgiveness. God has given us salvation. He's worked that into us so we can, we can now live it out. We work it out. True individually, but true corporately. So it means, church, let the church be the very best it can be for the wedding day because God has worked salvation into the church. So let's, let's work it out. So that, that means something corporate, doesn't it? It means church, let's work it out. Church, together, let's work it out. It means let there not be unforgiveness in the church, but let this be a forgiving community. Let this be a community of love 
and acceptance and vibrancy and faith. You know, you're not you're not working out well as a church. And you think, oh, blimey, here we got to go again. You know, you know, here's, here's what the elders are saying again. Oh, we've done this before, and all this kind of thing. You're not you're not embracing it by faith if you do that kind of thing. There needs to be faith in the church. There needs to be love. There needs to be a sense of community and vibrancy. So actually, we're working out the salvation corporately that God has worked into us. Right, so I, I don't want to detain you too long tonight because I so appreciate you being here, but let me just take you as a final verse to Revelation 21 and verse 9. So, still with this theme, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And can I say, you kind of sense the pride in that angel. And he says to John, come on, I want to show you something. I want to show you the bride. What's he saying? Friends, he said, I want to show you the church. I want to show you the church. I want to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You see, I mean, how do you see the church? The believers? But how do you really see the church? You can say, oh, well... You know, not doing too well in this country at the moment, a bit knocked about, you know, a bit sort of under pressure. I mean, ha, you, might, you can feel overwhelmed, can't you? You know, you can feel, you know, there's the church, but everything seems to be against us. We feel a bit overwhelmed. I mean, I wonder how do you see this church? And you might feel, well, hope we might have made more impact, hope we might have got further than we've got so far. You, you can feel a bit kind of a bit disappointed. Let me tell you, friends, this is not how the church is seen in heaven. This mighty angel is saying to John, hey, look at the church. Look at the bride. Look at the wife of the lamb. I mean, you just see the pride in the angel. I, I was speaking to a lady a couple of years back who worked in a bridal shop. And so, you know, the brides go in there and they put on their wedding dress, uh, preparing for the big day. Uh, and I said to this lady, I said, you know, when the, the girls come in and, and they put on the wedding dress, I said, did you find that, that, that their mothers get emotional? She said, it's not their mothers, it's their fathers, she said. <laughs> she said, they're total wrecks, all right? They always turn around, they're blubbing away, my little daughter, you know, oh, she look wonderful, you know. And he said, the pride kind of spills out of the fathers in huge emotion. That's what you've got in the angel, folks. The angel's looking at the church. Tremendous passion, tremendous emotion. The bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. It's fantastic. And so I want you to see the wonder and the majesty of what we are. It's amazing to be the church. You know, we can look at it from an earthly perspective and uh, we can feel disappointed and we can wonder what's, you know, where we're getting to. I mean, there's all sorts of emotions that come in. And, but friends, I want you to just wonder of it, the majesty of being the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, such romance. Christ gave himself up for the church. Christ gave everything. He surrendered all in order to win the church. Friends, the celebrations are going to come. All right, Hold on. Hold on in tough times. Because where we're going, what we're heading for, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. But at the same time, let's also prepare 
for that final day. Let's corporately, as a local church, be the very best we can be for the wedding day. And I suggest there's only one word that covers all of this, and it's the word hallelujah. (laughs) Let's stand, can we? Right, just to pray for you as, as, as a church and ask that God will, will bless you. Father, I just, pray, I just pray right now for every believer here, Lord, that you will do something in us tonight that will help us to grasp hold of the sheer wonder of being the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. Lord, we, we've all had knocks, we've all had disappointments, things that perhaps haven't gone as we hoped they, they might. And uh, Lord, from an earthly perspective, it's not always wonderful, we know that. But Father, we pray that you'll kind of give us the eyes of Christ here tonight, that we may see the church, Lord Jesus, as you see the church, spot, spotless, without, without a wrinkle, a radiant, radiant bride. Lord Jesus, you gave yourself up to, to woo and win the church to be like that. Thank you for the care that you're taking of the church even now. Thank you for washing us with water through the word of God and constantly kind of cleansing us so that uh, the church, whenever you come, Lord Jesus, might be presented as this radiant bride. Lord, keep, keep our eyes, even this week, focused on the celebrations to come. There's a wedding coming up, Lord. And uh, for some of us, it might be tough this week as believers, but the wedding's coming. <laughs> The celebrations are going to kick in. Babylon will fall, but there'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, Father, I pray that here in in Jubilee Church and Solihull, Lord, as you work salvation in, Lord, I pray you'll give grace to this church to work salvation out. Father, I I pray that you'll do a great work here in this church, Lord, that uh, uh, love and grace will really multiply in this church. I pray it will be a wonderful community, an accepting community. I pray for the elders, Lord, at the present time, that you'll bless them. I pray that others will come through, that will stand with them. pray for a growing leadership team. I pray for a leadership team that will lead in an utterly godly way and for a people that will respond with faith to the lead that is given. I pray, Father, that you'll save sinners, that you'll restore backsliders, and that you will edify the saints here in this church. Uh, Lord, give us the excitement, give us some wedding feeder, Lord, that we might, as it were, prepare for the wedding day, because we've been accepted. It's not that we have to make ourselves acceptable. We are accepted, and because we're accepted, we want to be the very best that we can be for the bridegroom. Lord, I thank you for the utter supremacy of Jesus Christ, that we can trust him in everything. I thank you that the church is the bride of Christ. And I pray that we may grasp the wonder, the majesty, the magnificence of it. Lift our heads, Lord, even this week, as we separate, go away, but Lord, we're still your church, we're still your bride. And all God's people said, and you should say, hallelujah. <laughs>